Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Rebecca Harrison, um, who's a lecturer in theatre, film and television studies at the University of Glasgow, about her new book, The Empire Strikes Back, which is published as part of the BFI Classics series. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Hi. Um, This, um, and I promise you this will be my only pun, uh, this is an impressive, most impressive book about The Empire Strikes Back, um, both in terms of introducing the film, um, kind of setting it in its um, historical and, and contemporary context, but also, I think, um, you know, offering a, uh, a kind of a challenge to um, what we might think uh, of the film and maybe, you know, some, some kind of interesting revisions. And I guess the place to start is... Um, how you came to write this book, um, why you were sort of interested in this, and, and particularly actually what why you're interested in writing this, um, I suppose, scholarly edition uh, about this famous film. Uh, well, thank you very much, first of all, for the kind words about it. Uh, I've actually been more nervous about the publication of this than I think anything else I've ever written, in part because it is taking this I think you said, you know, kind of, it is a revisionist take on, on the film and on the franchise. Uh, so I was starting a project, a much bigger project about Star Wars from an academic perspective that should lead to a much bigger book that looks at the whole franchise and will think more about some of the, the paratexts outside of the films, um, including the games and... Um, what they've done with the uh, fairground attractions and things like um, theme parks. Couldn't think of the word there. Um, So things like that as well, and some of the TV shows. Uh, And that is about more about technology and how Star Wars, the Star Wars franchise through Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic has kind of pioneered digital technology um but not just thinking about it as an aesthetic thing but which is what we tend to do in in film and media studies but to think about the implications of that through production distribution exhibition um in terms of labor practices and and who is making these films and how they're being made and so on and that's due to come out in i think 2024 i think um i should know that uh, so I was already working on that project and have uh, a contract with Bloomsbury for the book that will come out of it. So I'd already been uh, kind of talking about this new project on Star Wars a bit online. And I also kind of moonlight as a, a film critic and culture writer. So I had done some shorter, more general audience writing on Star Wars that had come out. Uh, and then I was... Uh, my, contacted by the editor at Bloomsbury who is in charge of the BFI film classics list 
and uh, that was Rebecca Barden, and she asked me if I would be interested in writing something on The Empire Strikes Back because the 40th anniversary of the film was coming up. Obviously, that was this year, back in May. Uh, so then really it was just a case of sitting down and thinking about whether or not I had something new to say about this particular film, uh, which I have loved dearly since childhood. And it's probably my my all-time favourite Star Wars film, I think. Um, but yeah, there's, um, there's so much out there that's already already been said. So it was really just a case of, you know, am I the right person to say this and do I have something to say, which I, I hope it comes across that, that I have. Um, but it was, in the end, it just ended up being a really exciting, fun project to work on. I mean, that, that totally shines through in, um, in the book, actually. And, and you know, the, the book is an, an, an incredibly um, easy read, both in terms of um, kind of going through it, like, you know, it's it's rare any kind of academic analysis is is a sort of a page turn but this really is but also actually in terms of the overall framework that you you've got and and i think you absolutely do bring something new to to the study of the film through this idea of um disruption and the kind of the story of, of empire strikes back being a story about disruption you mentioned earlier you know viewing uh star wars in relation to things like uh, production, distribution, technology, um, and I guess these themes are, are present um, in in this book. So I, I wonder if you could sort of sketch out that idea of, of disruption and, and why uh, Empire is a kind of a, a disruptive film. Yeah, this came to me actually. It wasn't the framework through which I initially pitched the book, uh, and it came to me a bit later when I was doing one of my many, many, many rewatches of the film. Uh, you get to a point where you think, I'm never going to see anything new in this, and then all of a sudden it hits you and, you, and you've seen it in a completely different way. Uh, so, I mean, narratively, it's obviously about disruption because the first film ends on the, the rebels at the, the medal ceremony and peace has been restored to the galaxy and there's a, a, a new kind of equilibrium at the end Obviously, Darth Vader has gone spinning off into space. At that point, you're meant to think that he has been defeated because the Death Star has been blown up and there's nothing left for him to to come back to. So obviously, if you're going to do a sequel to a film like that, you have to disrupt the equilibrium and you have to to shift things and twist it and and blow blow the piece up again. Um, So that, just in terms of its narrative, it's absolutely reliant on on disruption but I'm also a historian so for me it was about putting the film into its historical context and I'm thinking about the late 70s so the film went into production in I think it was March 79 if I remember correctly but yeah, but I think it was actually the premise of it was was in underway in seventy eight. So that kind of late seventies period through to to nineteen eighty when it comes out, there's so much going on around the film that's informing its story and its aesthetics. You have an election that's taking place in the UK while they're filming on location in England. There's the election in the the US. Um, which uh, which Reagan wins. 
there's so you've got this kind of shift to the right of in politics going on in both the places where the film is being made uh there's a huge amount of kind of social and cultural upheaval and turmoil still going on around uh gender and race and sexuality and issues of inequality in both uh hollywood in both north america and in across britain um there's all sorts going on with concerns about climate change, um, what we would now refer to as the climate emergency. So there's a lot going on that's that's quite disruptive and disorienting, I think, for people in their, their everyday lives. And you can absolutely see that throughout the film. It addresses quite a lot of these quite a lot of these issues in implied ways, even if it's not doing it really explicitly. But also, I mean, just the aesthetics of the film, whereas in A New Hope, everything is very kind of flat and linear and at right angles, and it's quite slow. And, you know, the camera moves from side to side and it moves up and down on two different axes. And it's it's quite a, a traditional kind of watch in some ways. But then you get Empire, which is just all over the literally all over the place and suddenly you're working on all of these different axes and planes there are things at diagonals there are canted screens they are loop the looping then twisting from one side to the next the characters are being thrown around everywhere so just all the way through the film like completely embedded in it is disruption divergence uh, and just a kind of audiovisual chaos at times which i guess parallels the um precisely the kind of uh, social, political, cultural context that you've, you've alluded to there. And I, I'm really interested in um, why empire matters, because um, I think in, in order to kind of understand um, Empire Strikes Back, you do have to know a bit about um, why Star Wars matters. And it seems like an absolutely bonkers question to be like, why does Star Wars matter when you've got, you know, this kind of billion dollar franchise, it's cultural importance, you know, its sort of position in, in um, shaping, I guess, a kind of a global um, culture that we we have now. But but, but I do think it is important uh, that, that we do a bit of that kind of contextualization. So I, I love the line actually quite early on in the book where, where you pose this question about uh, the way Star Wars came to acquire cultural capital. And, and it's strange really because, you know, um, in terms of, I guess, the position of the genre, um, in terms of its sort of status as, as a blockbuster, you know, it the entire franchise uh, is perceived very differently um, than it would have been, you know, pr- previously in Hollywood. And, and we'll talk about things like the, like the critics later. But I guess it would be kind of useful to hear a little bit about why Star Wars matters and, and within that why Empire Strikes Back is is a significant film. I mean, in terms of why Star Wars matters, I, I guess the easy and obvious and yet also incredibly complicated answer is that it's because we've all made it matter. Um, it's that's it's almost like a joint endeavour between the the filmmakers, the distributors, the fans, and the critics. Um, without all of us participating in creating Star Wars, it it wouldn't matter. So I think we all play a role in that and ensuring that it's still relevant, whether that's through 
nostalgia for the older Star Wars films and texts or a kind of continued interest in the new ones that Disney are now making. Um, yeah, I think, and certainly through uh, the way that it acquired cultural capital, again, I think is around so many different people participating in processes just at the right time and in a particular context where it all just came together. So I, the the role that George Lucas kind of played in the kind of, um, I guess, the, a movement, I don't know if I want to call it a movement, perhaps, perhaps that's the right word for it, of New Hollywood. So the films that were coming out in the late 60s and through the 70s by filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola, which were a kind of backlash against the studio system. And they were about a kind of an independent mode of filmmaking and production that gave more control to directors and producers um, and kind of bypassed the studio system and were responsible for some of the what we now think of as the most canonical films coming out of Hollywood in that period. And Lucas was, was obviously tangential to that, um, kind of kind of aligned with them because he'd been working with Coppola um, and his first film, his first feature film, um, THX, was kind of firmly in that mould. So he had that cultural cachet that he took into making this kind of bonkers blockbuster sci-fi western space opera mashup which i mean now i think it's it's obviously it's really common for you know filmmakers with a certain level of esteem to be asked to go and make genre blockbuster films for big studios and it's seen as a, a kind of natural move for them but i don't think it was so common at that point in time but it i think it gave Star Wars, the the kudos of the association with New Hollywood, and also Lucas's incredibly canny and smart move to merchandise the hell out of it. So it was, you know, suddenly you've got this thing which is the branding of it. It was everywhere, and all the merchandise that went with that is in everyone's homes. It's on everyone's television set. It's on every poster. It's in all the department stores. So it acquires capital both in a, a material way and in this more conceptual way at the same time. Uh, and then Empire comes along, which really, on the face of things, should have failed because at that point, I don't, again, I don't think there had really been that many instances of sequel films really doing that well. And certainly the expectation was that. It would probably just be a remake of the first film that wouldn't do anything that exciting or new. And the studio, um, 20th Century Fox, the distributor, as well as I think, you know, Lucas ended up putting a lot of his own money into the film. Um, There was a lot of ambivalence about, you know, were they going to make the money back? Was it going to be a big flop? The fact that it was reasonably well received by critics and was so popular with fans I think really really established Star Wars as a I'm I'm now going to do a pun as well a force to be reckoned with although I didn't mean to (laughs) that was an unintended pun that I found myself coming up with there um you you structure the book uh I guess kind of 
chronologically um, from that moment of introducing the franchise and, and, and why, it, why it matters through uh, production, through uh, the content of the film, and then into um, questions of, of reception. And obviously production is one of those kind of key moments where your narrative of, of Empire as being disruptive uh, kind of comes through. And it'd be great to hear a bit about, um, uh, I guess, why the story of Empire's uh, production is a story of, of disruption. Yeah, so the, the production chapter was actually the one I struggled with the most um, because while I was free to approach the film however I wanted, the series asks that you include certain information and cover certain topics and the the film's production is one of those things and of course there's just so much out there that's already been said about its production so I was thinking you know I'm not going to uncover kind of big new stories there's also because the the word count of the book is quite limited they're you know short reads so I thought I can't go out and interview tons of creative talent involved in the film because I simply won't have space to write up those interviews. And even the ones that are in there, there's very, very limited material and I'll, I'll publish the rest in the next book. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was a bit worried about that production chapter. But actually, so what I've, I've done is taken a, a kind of meta approach to analysing a lot of the existing narratives about it. Uh, because, and then, and, and then in turn, I've, I've tried to slightly disrupt those. Because it turned out that the, the film's production history was, again, like a, a kind of chaotic. Um, so much went wrong for them. And they were very, very clever, the, the PR people, about selling a story to the public that was one of overcoming challenges and difficulties and hurdles, which pointed to how absolutely committed the filmmakers were to the authenticity of the film and to serving the Star Wars fans. Um, so some of the disruptions, they were filming uh, on in Finza in Norway, which uh, I was fortunate enough to visit earlier in the year. And it's a, a glacier in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's not, yeah, not in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's very, very remote. One of the most remote places I've ever been. And there's, when people tell you there's nothing there, they're not lying uh, you turn up and there is the train station platform a tiny shop and a hotel and that's it for miles miles and miles and miles there's just snow <laughs> and it's quite it is very very overwhelming to find yourself in that situation uh, and it happened that in the spring of 79 when they were filming there were terrible terrible storms that rendered the production almost immobile and unable to operate. So uh, there are stories about members of the crew, um, including Harrison Ford, being stranded overnight in tiny railway stations and not being able to get to the location. Uh, some days they couldn't go outside at all. There's the the moment in the film when uh, Luke is mauled by a, a womper on Hoth they ended up filming literally just outside the back door of the hotel because they couldn't actually get outside enough in a whiteout to be able to to shoot at the location that they'd found. So there's all of these kinds of stories. And then when they get to the 
when they get to shoot in the studio um, in England, they had a brand new purpose-built soundstage, which was at the time, I think, the biggest soundstage anywhere in the world. Uh, but that they actually, even then, they needed more space. Uh, the other soundstage that they were meant to be using had uh, been damaged in a fire in the Kubrick film that was filming in there just before. So there were all of these delays. They ran way over budget. They were filming scenes backwards because parts of the set weren't finished each day. So it was just a, it's a kind of, it sounded like a bit of a nightmare shoot from start to finish, um, which, yeah, they now you'd think that you would kind of hide those problems that you were facing. And when films, I use the example of Solo, actually, the 2018 Star Wars film, you know, that had reshoots and change of director, or was it the script writers? And there were... there was Director, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, they brought, uh, was it Ron Howard came in to Disneyfy the film? Yes, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think around that there was lots of talk of disruption on the set and people not being happy. And so everyone anticipated that the film probably wouldn't be very good because of the production process. Whereas with Empire, they've really used it to their advantage to say, oh yeah, it was all disrupted, but but that's part of part of the narrative of the film. Like, look at this amazing thing that we've achieved by overcoming these hurdles. I mean, w- one element of your um, disruption uh, frame goes to your own uh, attempts to uh, disrupt the common narratives of, of Star Wars. And, and with Empire, obviously, we're dealing with something that, you know, both in terms of control of the intellectual property, which, you know, you know uh, we, we've seen um, in recent months discussions uh, of Lucas's, you know, sort of alternative vision if the franchise hadn't been sold to Disney, but also in, in terms of, uh, I guess, his indelible link um, with with Star Wars, there is a kind of narrative of, you know, these are uh, essentially kind of Lucas's uh, babies, <laughs> children, whatever sort of metaphor you'd, you'd want there. And this means that both, you know, the kind of uh, broader uh, assemblage of uh, individuals, uh, you know, maybe um, who are kind of crucial to the creative process gets um maybe downplayed, erased, or forgotten. But in particular, um, it means we miss um, really important narratives of gender in the production of Star Wars. Um, And one of the things you do um, in that production chapter is to kind of highlight this. And it'd be good to to maybe spend a little bit of time hearing about how you highlight that, because it's a theme that comes up uh, later on in the book as well. So what's the sort of the the gendered story um, of empire's uh, production i mean to be honest this is an area that i really wish i mean this could be a book on its own and you know i had a couple of pages really to to allude to some of these these issues um i mean the the problem is just from start to finish and this isn't just applicable to the empire strikes back or to star wars this is a problem throughout throughout history uh, not just film um but one that we have to reckon with in the in doing film history and media history all the time is the erasure from the historical record of the labor and creative input of marginalized people. So again, this isn't just a, it's not even just a, a woman problem. This is a problem of 
around race, around ethnicity, language, geography, all of these things. Uh, certainly in the case of The Empire Strikes Back, all of the narratives, all of the narratives in the mainstream, so in the popular press, in trade presses, and actually really for the most part in scholarship. Um, and I'm saying this not with a view to not erasing the work that has been done by people of colour, by queer scholars and so on, but but generally speaking, it's cis white straight men who have done this work and done the writing and that's who they tend to focus their attention on so women have been largely left out even though there's lots of women's names in the credits for the film Uh, so I was fortunate enough when I was in Norway I met Madeline Most who worked as a um, in the camera department uh, on on set so I, I spent a few hours talking to her um, and hearing her story about what that was like. And it sounded, I mean, it suddenly sounded absolutely amazing. And she had a great time making both the, the first and the second Star Wars films. But also it was just, it sounded so hard being you know, the only woman in your department and the way that she had to adapt her behavior to kind of fit into that space and some of the things that she had to put up with and some of the language um, and abuse that was initially leveled at her. Um, I wish I could be shocked by it. And I wish I could think that that doesn't still happen today, uh, which neither unfortunately is the case. Um, But I also, I mean, I heard some really great stories as well. Um, It's noticeable that there are in a few cases, every now and then you find evidence of men who worked on the production really bigging up one of their women colleagues. Um, so, for example, on location in Norway, there was uh, a helicopter crew who were working with really like high-level specialist, adapted specifically for this film kind of equipment to to get the aerial shots that were then part of the com- uh, compositing process with the the attacks and the the live footage added in. Uh, and he writes about uh, Margaret Heron, who was the camera assistant in the helicopter. And she was doing this like astonishing, phenomenal work and was, you know, making a major contribution to to what we see on the screen in this film. But it, trying to find interviews with her is impossible. Like I just, I cannot, I certainly online at least, I can't find anything. Um, so yeah, I think one of the, the next things to do with the bigger book is to is to try to find people to interview and to to fill in some of the gaps of these stories um and it's worth mentioning as well that actually there is a project by Amy Rochot in the in the US um she runs a a blog called uh, 365 days of star wars women which has like just an enormous repository of information about the women that have worked across the franchise. And that does include quite a lot of interviews with the, the women who are still alive to be able to tell their stories. Um, so that's, that's worth checking out if you're interested in following up on, on issues of gender in the franchise. We can extend this into, um, into the film itself. And I guess the kind of the representations that are, 
are in the film, um, we've got, you know, challenges to what um, we think of as a kind of conventional hero in the film with obviously, you know, the, the kind of powerful character that is is Yoda. Um, but also the, you try and get to grips with the way things like gender, sexuality, race, both come together uh, in particular characters like uh, Lando. Um, but also, again, you know, you continue this uh, slightly uh, disruptive theme and picking up on what you were saying, not just about uh, women's erasure from uh, the production process, but it'd be interesting to hear how you uh, kind of extended or, or continued discussions around gender, sexuality and race when you're thinking about the representations that are that are actually on screen in the film. Yeah, I mean, this was, I think this was the most fun chapter to write because it was the one where I just got to to go to town with, you know, what I position all the way through. This is part of doing revisionist work is coming to something with a a different set of values or a different perspective. And I've tried to be really open and clear about what my perspective is and what I am bringing to the film. So, yeah, this was the point when I just got to go wild, really. Um, in terms of gender, I think the, the most important thing for me in terms of thinking about representation was to to do this from an intersectional point of view and not to just say, this is a good film because it has a strong woman or this is a bad film because there's only one woman and that, you know, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test uh, so, for example, there there isn't another woman with for Leia to have a conversation with. Um, I feel like those those kinds of ways of looking at things can be quite reductive. So, I wanted to allow it to be complicated, and to allow it to have flaws and to have ideological issues and things that I don't necessarily agree with, even though I love the film. So, I in looking at Leia in particular. It was important to me to see to see her, you know, to think about this as a, a character who is not just a woman. She's also white and she is also a princess and a senator who has come from an, an elite upper class moneyed background and wields an enormous amount of power within the rebellion. And so looking at her from that point of view, I found more kind of useful in terms of positioning the film again like in a historical context these these things are quite um there are connections there between Leia and white second wave feminism around the same period and some of the things that she says in terms of I mean things that we find really funny they are jokes and they are meant to be about Leia asserting her power or to to retrieve power in instances where men are taking it away from her. You know, she calls Han a scruffy looking nerf herder, for example. But if we, I mean, some people might feel like, okay, this is, you know, maybe you're going a bit far here. But if we think about that in the context of a real world situation, she's insulting him based on labor and class, which makes sense because she's a princess, but you know, it's, it, that isn't, that's not, a, you know, that isn't a feminist thing to do, for example. Um, so in looking at race and sexuality, again, it was about doing the same thing, being critical of the way that the film positions Lando as the only black man in in the film and in Star Wars up to that point. Um, there are certainly racist tropes and conventions 
that it's heavily reliant on. But at the same time, it's demonstrating, you know, that it's a black man in a position of power. It's a black man who is demonstrating an enormous amount of care for his friends. So I just, yeah, as I said, trying to trying to get some of the kind of complicated nuances within the film that I think you can certainly, I, without having to, you know, without really paying attention to it, find it quite easy to miss. How was it received? Uh, and I guess there's, uh, I mean, there are multiple audiences for any cultural text, but um, in, in, in uh, I guess, the kind of closing chapters of the book, you think through uh, the reception from fans, both, you know, then, then and now, um, but also uh, in terms of critics. So what did the fans think and, and what did the critics say? I think the the fans were already geared up to love it before it even hit the hit the screen um on the day that it premiered so there were fans queuing for three days outside cinemas in la um i'm not sure if people were quite so uh, invested in the uk but then the weather isn't really conducive to to camping outside a cinema for three days in london so um i don't blame them uh, but there were definitely you know there was a huge amount of hype there had been an enormous publicity campaign with the the stars being taken on a kind of PR, PR tour all around Europe, Australia, Japan, you know, all across the US. Uh, so I think, it, you know, it was always going to be a hit with the people that loved Star Wars. And it did enormously well at the box office. Its initial box office takings were much, much higher than than Star Wars, although it didn't eclipse it entirely um, over a, a longer period of time. And it seems like the the reception was pretty was pretty good among fans. I interviewed Terry Hardin, who was a kind of super fan and was quite famous at the time. She was at the front of the queue at the Chinese Theatre in LA and um, was interviewed a lot by the press. She had, I think, she kind of unofficially held the record for seeing Star Wars the most number of times when it first came out. And... Yeah, she describes everyone being elated, people cheering, the kind of the big moment with the uh, I am your father reveal, like sent everyone into, um, you know, again, cheering, clapping. So it sounds like everyone had a great time. The critics were a bit more mixed, uh, I think for a variety of reasons, but largely to do with the film's blockbuster status. And although it had these kind of art film and actually like really kind of camp melodramatic antecedents and aesthetics I think critics you can almost sense that they don't know quite what to do with it they want to say nice things about it but they also feel you know they're still saying oh but it's a blockbuster it's a family film it's mass entertainment this film is guaranteed to make money whatever we say about it and and so you can you can sense that it like again it's it's disruptive it disrupts critics notions of what uh good good cinema is according to these hierarchies of taste it's it's sort of a strange thing to as you round off the book and, and we're going to round off the conversation to talk about there being multiple empire strikes back but i think um, it is important, I guess, to kind of uh, to grapple with that, that this is a, a film that 
as well as having these, you know, kind of multiple uh, receptions with different audiences, fan groups, critics, both, you know, then and, and kind of, you know, critical um, canonization um, as we get towards the present. But it's also something that, you know, Lucas has uh, fiddled about with, you know, there are um, kind of um, changes to all three of the original trilogy, um, some of which, um, you know, fans were kind of really unhappy with, uh, some of which had, you know, really major implications for how characters are seen, such as Han uh, not firing first in, um, in A New Hope, uh, these kinds of things, and and yet Empire seemed to be the one that uh, I suppose was was kind of um, least messed about with, or uh, if, if I was going to use a stronger term, was kind of you know li- least sort of ruined by um, Lucas's messing about, and and I guess it, it's sort of interesting to hear about the sort of the multiple textual nature um, of this film. You know, is, is it right to say that there is a kind of an Empire Strikes Back, or are we dealing with uh, multiple versions? You know, some of which are, are kind of purer, and others of which uh, have maybe been, you know, um, changed, damaged, ruined, made better, even. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely fair to say that there are multiple The Empire Strikes Backs, and I mean, to be honest, with any film, you know the. The formatting, the colour grading, all of these things will change from the theatrical release print of a film to, or if it's on uh, DCP, like the digital cinema package, which is the the format most common in cinemas, and the home viewing, are, they're always going to be different and there will always be changes. So actually, when we talk about a film, we tend to be masking the fact that we're talking about multiple versions of it in the first place. But yeah, certainly with the Star Wars films, there are so many different iterations of them. Um, I actually had to to write a, a kind of foreword to the book to explain this and to explain which edition of the film I was actually referring to throughout the book. Um, because I'm trying to locate it in the 80s, I've used the version that's closest to what people would have seen in the theatres in 1980. But even that, you know, that's a a scan of a home viewing print of the theatrical release, which has been put out on DVD, but it's not the official DVD format for that film, which as you say has been remastered and, and digitized by Lucas in the, I think it was in the late nineties that that happened. Um, with, yeah, both the uh, episode Four and episode six, so either side of Empire, had fairly substantial narrative elements changed. Um, they've had sequences added in. Um, fans will immediately recognise the the Han shot first drama um, from the original Star Wars film, where he, Han is in a cantina and shoots uh, his this other bounty hunter. Um, in cold blood, he just shoots him without any kind of violent provocation on the other side. And and Lucas changed that so that the other bounty hunter shot at him first in the later edition. So there's these all sorts of changes, but Empire doesn't get changed like that. And although it has lots of new shots added, they are mostly just to clean up 
the visual effects that were not quite right. So it was mostly about tweaking things and there aren't any substantial narrative or dialogue changes. So I think people end up seeing even these later editions of Empire, they see them as more authentic and closer to the original text than perhaps the other films are. You, you mentioned you're working on a much bigger uh, Star Wars project. Um, I'm interested to, to sort of wrap up and conclude with where Empire relates to to that, actually. And, and what, what do you think is its position, um, you know, not, not just with the other Nile uh, 8 films and, and, and the triple trilogy it's, it's part of, but also in terms of uh, where we are with this kind of sprawling and, and multiple Star Wars universe of uh, books, some of which are canon, some of which aren't, television series, animated series, um, you know, n- non-trilogy uh, films, stuff like this. Is, is it just a matter of um, Empire just being, you know, the kind of most significant, most important, um, or actually should we just uh, view it, I guess, as one part of this larger cultural phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, this is, for me, it was a really, really interesting moment to get to write about Empire because I suspect that where, whereas now it's, it holds this position as being, you know, the favourite Star Wars film. Almost every single list that you look at, every single poll, every single critics list, it's always, you know, the best um, out of the the films in the franchise. But we are just shifting into a moment where the people who are becoming or are about to become critics, academics, um, filmmakers, people who have authority in the public sphere to determine taste. They are of an age where the prequels were actually their first encounter with Star Wars, and they saw those often before seeing the original trilogy. And whereas the prequels are derided, actually, by a lot of people from my generation and back, the the students that I teach now who want to write dissertations about Star Wars, they love the prequels and think they're brilliant, and they have a completely different notion of what authenticity means in the Star Wars universe because that's their first encounter with it so I think that actually writing this book might might be in the dying moment of of Empire being the favorite film and its status within the within the franchise might change as new voices and new perspectives come along with with a completely different way of encountering these films. Mm. 